you turn with me to Hebrews 11, wonderful chapter about the lives of people of faith. I'm going to read from verse 8 to, to 11 here. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, obeyed and went. And even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you again for bringing us together. Thank you for a church that loves you and serves you. And we just pray this morning, as we come again to your word, you would speak to our hearts. And we thank you for all that it means to us, for your purposes and your love. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes when I'm reading the book of Genesis, I feel like an archaeologist who, in Israel, comes to a crypt that has never been opened. And as he opens it, he finds an old people magazine. As he looks at it, he sees the date is 2019, but it's not A.D., but it's B.C. But as he looks on the subjects on the cover, he finds that not a whole lot has changed. Sarah laments that her biological clock is ticking and she still wants a baby. Rebecca and Isaac, they announce that they're having twins. Rachel complains how hard it is to live in a multi-marriage family. <laughs> and Jacob mourns the loss of his firstborn son, Joseph. How current the topics of, of Genesis is. God blessed Sarah with a son, but not without some problems along the way. When a, a drought and a famine hit the Negev area where they were camped, they had to make their way down to Egypt. Sometimes it's looked at as kind of a sin that they left Canaan, but they needed to survive as well. And while they were there in Egypt, the Pharaoh took a looking or a liking to Sarah. And Abraham, afraid for his life, claimed that he was her brother and, and not her husband. I told half a lie because they were related in that way. But in the end, God revealed himself to the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh had them leave Egypt. Now whether he made the gift of handmaiden Hagar to Sarah as a gift, or whether they picked her up as a souvenir on the way out, she ended up with them back in the land of Canaan. And Sarah gave in to the cultural ties of the time, which was if you were barren, you could give a second wife to your husband, and any children born would have the same claims as yours. And so she gave Hagar to Abraham as, as wife, and their son was born, Ishmael. And for the next 12 years, Sarah was going to have to watch that boy growing up in her tent, watch the attention that Abraham gave to the boy, as she sat in the corner of the tent and was looked down on by Hagar. 
But God did bless her. And in time, Isaac was born. And he became the special son, the son of error that had been promised, who would continue to carry on the promise that God had made to Abraham that they would become a great people, an important people, the people who would, be, who would bless the world in time. And so for the next 40 years, she pretty much just took care of him. She didn't let anyone, she didn't share him with anyone, and she didn't share Kent with anyone. And so Isaac was just the most important thing in her life and became that in Abraham's as well. And then at the age of 127, she passed away. Now, Abraham didn't even have a place to bury her at, at that point, and so as he looked around, he saw a cave that would work as a sepulcher and a small piece of property, and so he approached the man he was a Hittite, and asked if he could buy the land. And at first, Ephraim, the Hittite, in the very typical way of the, of the time, said, why don't you just take it? It's, it's yours, just one friend to another. Abraham knew better, and so he asked again. He said, what will you have for the cave in this piece of land? And Ephraim said, 400 shekels of silver. I was like asking a million dollars for it because he expected this was the beginning of the bargaining point. Abraham just said to his servant, go and fetch the silver and pay him. And the people were amazed because they said how much he loved he had for Sarah. Didn't even bargain. A little later on, Jacob would buy a bigger piece of property and he would end up paying 100 shekels for that. So it gives you some idea of the worth of it. As Abraham settled the accounts, it says that he bought the land, he bought the cave, and he bought the trees. Now, we would think that's kind of a strange thing to say, but in the Middle East, it's interesting how bargaining goes. I had the opportunity to work with an archaeologist by the name of Joseph Free, and he had spent 10 years working to purchase this tell, this archaeological site. It's quite large, from six Arab families. And finally, on the day he was able then to sign and, and bring this property under his control, the next thing they asked is, what are you going to do about the trees? And there were 120 of them on the property. So he had to bargain for every one of the 120 trees to finish up his, his uh, shop of the, or his shop of the uh, tell and all that went with it. So he knew Abraham's issues at that point. Interesting, this would be the only property that Abraham would ever own in all of Canaan. God had promised him the whole country, but this little parcel with a sepulcher on it would be the total of it during his lifetime. He had to wait with faith for the future. Now somebody has labeled the life of Sarah and three Bs, the barren years, the bitter years, and the blessed years. She was without child for 90 years. She had to live with Hagar and Ishmael for a dozen years, and then Isaac was hers for the last 40 years. And so she left Isaac, not particularly a young man, 
but a man with a whole future of him. And I think that as she passed away, both Abraham and, and Isaac realized that it was time for him to take and seek a wife. And so Abraham brought his servant, Elizer to him. I think Abraham at this time felt he was too old to make a journey back. They had made a covenant that they were going to go and find a wife back in the land where they had come from. This is because there was so much idolatry in the land, they just felt that if there was any intermarriage, pretty soon they would just be assimilated and they would be lost. And so they were going to do the best they can and seek a wife for Isaac in the country from which they had come, a month or month and a half away by camel uh, ride at that point. So Elizer asked Abraham, when I get there and if I find a girl, what if she won't come with me? And Abraham said, then your mission is accomplished and you can return home. So Elizer and nine others made the trip. They says he had 10 camels, so I assume there were 10 of the men who made the trip back towards Haran. And as they got closer, the servant thought to himself, how am I going to ever find this needle in a haystack? I'm out nowhere. There's no dating bureaus. What am I, how am I going to find this girl? Then he thought to himself, all right, if when we come to the village and there's a well, if I ask her for a drink, she will offer me a drink. And she will also say, I will water your camels. Now, a camel, having traveled some distance and maybe having drinking for, drank for a day or two, can easily drink 25 gallons of water at one stop. So 10 camels times 10, 25 gallons is 250 gallons. And when you're pulling it up from the well with a two-gallon jug, that's quite a project. So he's asking for a lot. But as they come near the well near Heron, lo and behold, this very lovely girl comes out. It's interesting that the writer of Genesis seems to have had an eye for, for women because he says she was good-looking. And uh, as she comes near the well... The uh, servant said, may I have a drink? And she says, of course. And she brings up some water and she says, I'll also water your camels. And that must have taken a while. And as she finished with that, he reached in his saddlebag and brought out some gold bracelets and put on her, on her arms and began to tell her the story of why he was there. And then he also brought out a, a very expensive gold ring and he, he put it on her. On her nose, of course. Where else could it be seen? So here she is, decked out now in gold bracelets and a gold ring. She says, come to our house. She says, we have plenty of room, and we even have fodder for your camel and camels and place for it. So Eliezer, Ebenezer comes to their house, and he meets her brother, Laban. Keep that name in mind because we're going to hear about him later. And I think Laban took one look at her and decided, this really has promise. And Eliezer tells him the story of, of his mission, how Abraham or Isaac and Isaac have sent him to find a wife. And uh, the Lord, he says, 
We were being in the way the Lord led us. A wonderful promise. Being in the way the Lord led us. He was prepared for that. And so he tells a story, and the appears the father, Bethel, is not in the picture, although his name comes up often, but it's Laban who makes all the decisions. Rebecca's brother. He seems to be willing to do it, but he, he says, I think we should talk to the, to the young lady, and so they bring in Rebecca, and she agrees. In fact, she's so ready to go that by the next morning, she has her suitcases packed, she is set. They said, why don't you stay for 10 days here and we'll have a celebration. We'll, we'll give you a proper goodbye. Family send off. Nope, she's ready to go. Hops on the camel, ready for a month and a half travel to go and marry a man that she just heard about the day before. She's ready to go. It says something, I think, about Rebecca. I think she's tired of, of living with her brother. I think she's very tired of, of sharing a tent with him. He's bossed her life. He's run all of her business. And this is her chance to get free. And she is ready to go. She's a regular little firecracker. And we should not be surprised later on she has some shenanigans to pull off. She's, she's ready. And it also says something about Laban. He's kind of measured these gifts. He's measured the story. He's thinking, well, I don't think any of the boys in this area could come up with more dowry than that, so let her be on her way, and maybe more good will come of this along the way. And so Rebecca makes the trip with the nine or ten men she had only met the day before back all the way to the land of Canaan. As they're nearing the, the area where Isaac are camped, she sees somebody out there, and, and she asks, I mean, who, is, who is that? And she said, that's your master. So she hops off the, um, her camel and puts on her veil. She has to be proper. And she comes to, comes to stay then with Isaac and becomes his wife. Isaac is not a young man. He's probably already 40 years old when he marries uh, Rebecca. And for some time, they do not have any children. It seems like the family has a problem with, with having children. And she prays for God to give her children. And the Lord gives her an answer. And she's not only going to have a child, she's going to have two of them. And she struggles in her, in her pregnancy with the two of them. And she's given a prophecy, which I think becomes a kind of black cloud over the whole family. And the prophecy is that one of these twins is going to be stronger than the other, and that the elder is going to be ruled over by the younger. And so this is, this is the story now of the family as the two boys are, are born. Esau, as you, you know, the story is very red. Red comes out very hairy and, and very red. And then Jacob following, follows him in birth, holding on to his heel. And so he's given the, the name of the supplanter. And as time goes on, 
The family becomes separated. Isaac likes Esau because he's a man in the field. He's a hunter. He's a man's man. And Rebekah likes Jacob, and he's a man of the tents, which in time is going to make him very wealthy, but right now it's kind of a split. It becomes a very dysfunctional family. Age can and make for difficulties. I saw in our, our own family that there was a spread in age between husband and wife. At first, she was, he was 40 years old, Isaac, Rebecca was probably in her elder teen or older teens when, when she came and was married. So first, not so much, but as time goes on and age catches up with you and she's moving into her best years and he's slowly fading into old age. And then on top of that, his health is failing him. He becomes blind. And along the way, it brings all kinds of difficulties. Meanwhile, the boys are having their own problems. That prophecy still hangs in the air. And one could wonder what Jacob thinks and says, you know, uh, I wonder how God is going to make this work. And Esau says, yeah, this, this is never going to happen, at least to himself. And Rebecca thinks, I wonder if I can't make it happen. And so one day... Esau comes in from the field, he's, he's very hungry, he's not had any luck with game, and Jacob is cooking a bowl of lentils. It's interesting that even the name of the food isn't mentioned in the, in the story. And he's willing to give anything for it, and so Jacob says, sell me your birthright, which we think that it has to do with partly the, the sense of leadership in the family who's going to be the leader. Also a spiritual quality to it. There are no priests at this time, so it's the elder man in the family who's responsible for the religious activities and the spiritual content in the family. And then there's, there's a kind of promise of inheritance in it. But it's more the idea of leadership and especially spiritual leadership. And, and Esau doesn't mean anything. If I, if I die of hunger, this, this doesn't have any meaning for me. And so he says, I'll give it to you for, for something to eat. And uh, so Jacob gives him something to eat. Esau goes on his way, thinks no more of it. But time is marching on, and Isaac is beginning to think of his own mortality, I think, and he, he thinks it's time for me to pass on this family inheritance. And who better than my eldest son Esau? And so he sends him out in the field to, to get game, to bring him some of that good-tasting wild stew, and then he's going to bless them. Somehow, Rebecca hears what's happening. And so she grabs Jacob and says, you know, dress out this kid, a kid, and, and I'll make something so good. He, Jacob won't be able to tell the difference. Excuse me, uh, Isaac won't be able to tell the difference. And we will we'll get you in there for the inheritance. Jacob says, but, but I'm, you know, I'm fair-skinned. I, I don't have a lot of hair on me. Dad is going to, my dad's going to know me when he touches me. Don't worry, she said, I can take care of that. 
And so Jacob gets the food, and Rebecca plasters some uh, goat skin on the back of, of uh, Jacob so that uh, he feels like the real thing, and then he sneaks into to his father. His father enjoys the food, and then he says, you know, you sound like my son Jacob, but come closer. And he puts his hand on his back of his neck and on his arm, and he said, but you feel like Esau. And so he gives him the, the inheritance and blesses him, giving him the total uh, blessing that should have been Esau's. Then Jacob went, I think he went and hid. And Esau comes in with the food and finds that he has been tricked. And he is very, very bitter about it. Don't you have a blessing for me, he asks his father. And so his father gives him a secondary blessing. As it turns out, he's going to be very well taken care of. God's going to take care of him too, just in a different way. Well, Esau has other plans, and he begins to talk to his friends about the fact that as soon as his father is, is gone, he's going to take care of Jacob for what he's done. Rebecca hears about it, and she goes to Isaac and says, we, we need to have Jacob go and find a wife. And they agree that he should go back to Haran too, the city of Haran, and, and find a wife. And so Jacob leaves on this journey that's going to take 20 years. He's going to be on the run. And as he begins his journey the first day out, he, he stops in the middle of the country and uh, makes himself a little shelter and finds a rock to sleep on. I suspect if we slept on a rock, we'd probably have some dreams too, and he has one. He sees this stairway going up to heaven, and he sees the angels coming up and down, and he sees someone of glory at the top. And when he awakes, he says, you know, God was in this place, and I didn't know it. And so he puts up a stone and calls the place Bethel, the house of God. And God gives him a promise that he's going to be with him, that he's going to bless him. And he, he gives him basically many of the promises that he gave to Abraham and Isaac along the way. And I think this is for the first time that Jacob really comes to understand that God has purposes with him. And so he continues his, his journey on to, to Haran. As he comes to the well, as well as well served, he finds their shepherds around and waiting, and he wants to know why. And they say, well, we've got to get enough here to move the stone. And then this, this shepherdess comes down, and he asks who this could be. And they said, oh, this is, this is Rachel. This is Laban's daughter. And he is so taken with her that is really love at, at first sight. The uh, writer of, of Genesis says here again, she was fair of face and form. I think the old King James probably has the Hebrew even better. She was hot. Anyway, <laughs> he, he is taken with her, and he rushes over, throws his arms around her, and kisses her. I hope it was a good one, because it's going to take seven years before he gets another, another kiss. <laughs> 
and he shares who he is and helps her with watering the herbs, and then they, they go back to Laban's house. We already know a little about Laban. We know some of the expectations we might have at that point. Well, after a week, Laban says, what, what would you like to do? Now, Jacob had arrived not with gold in his saddlebag. says all he arrived with was the clothes on his back and a stave. And so he doesn't have a much to offer. But he, Laban says, I'm going to. He sees that she, he likes Rachel. And he says, if you work for me for seven years, the dowry will be seven years, you can have Rachel. And so it says, oh, seven years were like just a few days to, Rachel, or to Jacob because of his great love. Rachel. Well, at the end of the the time, Jacob asked for his prize. And so they have a week of of wedding ceremonies. And don't ask me how, but when he wakes up the morning after, he finds he's married Leah. And he is very angry. In fact, in one of the, I think, key statements of Scripture, he uh, he says to Laban, you've tricked me. The man who's been probably the best trickster in the Bible. He's been tricked, out-tricked by Laban. Well, Laban says, we can't marry the younger before the elder sister. So you wait a week and then you can marry Rachel. And if you'll work for me another seven years, we'll call it even. So Jacob now has two wives and another seven years of labor. During that time, Leah has several sons. Rachel has none. And it gets frustrating for for everybody at this point. At the end of the seven years, Laban and and Jacob decide that they're going to work out a deal that uh, Jacob now should have some earnings from his work. It's clear that what he touches is successful. Laban's herds have multiplied. His family has been successful. And he doesn't want to lose Jacob. And so the agreement is, work for me for six years, and then you, you'll be up. And we'll make this arrangement. Jacob says, I'll take the striped and speckled goats and sheep. They'll be mine. Be easy to see. And you'll keep your herds. And those will be mine, and those will be yours. So as the six years went on, Jacob's herds just continued to multiply and to the point that the sons of Laban and even Laban himself was beginning to have some second thoughts about all this. He's got now a growing family in his midst. Uh, By this time, Jacob has uh, 11 sons. As Leah, or excuse me, as Rachel doesn't have children, she goes and does the cultural thing, gives her handmaiden to Jacob as a wife, and the handmaiden has two sons. When Leah says this, because after having five children, she seems not able to have any more, she gives her handmaiden. So now Jacob has four wives and 11 sons. Rachel then becomes pregnant and has Joseph. So everybody, I think, thinks that thinks that things are about over for this family, and now it's to get on. And as Jacob begins to think about things, I think for all these 20 years, I think over in his mind, he's thought about his brother Esau. 
and about the threats and about all the things that happen. And yet, I think he would like to go back to see his father and he'd like to make up with his brother. And so he asked Laban, I would like to return to Canaan. But Laban is not willing to let him go. It, this, this is his, he thinks it's his family, it's his daughters. He sees the boys, and there's one girl that also comes in the picture. And then all the flocks, I think, and the herds. I think that's the thing that bothers him most. And so at that point, everything seems to have stopped. But as Laban is off shearing one probably spring day, Jacob decides to leave and gets everything ready and, and heads back for Canaan. About three days later, Laban finds out about it, and he chases after Jacob. He, he too has serious things on his mind, but God takes and, and lets him know that Jacob is special and that he has to let him go. And so he meets up with Jacob and the rest of his family, and and uh, they have, a, have goodbyes. But Laban has a problem. He says, not only have you taken my daughters and your herds and left, he said, without even letting me say goodbye, but somebody has stolen our teraphim. And uh, usually it's translated gods or the idols of the family. And it's hard to know exactly what is meant here again. Probably they were idols of a kind. There also seems to be at that point that whoever has them also has right to all the family's inheritance. So it's a, it's a major question. What's happened to him? Of course, Jacob hasn't stolen them, and he doesn't know who has. But Rachel, Laban's daughter, she's had good instruction. She's the one who has made off with him. I guess she's thinking if we ever have to go back, something happens to Jacob, We'll have control of, of our inheritance and our family. And so Jacob says, go, and, go look through everything. And so Laban does and finds nothing. He comes to Rachel's tent. She's sitting on her camel saddle. She says, I'm sorry, it's my time of the month. I can't move. And she's sitting on him. So he leaves empty-handed. Later on, actually after her death, those idols will be taken and buried back in Canaan, which is a good sign of things. And so Jacob is on his way now to, to have some kind of reconciliation with his brother Esau. The question is, what is going to happen? And as he's moving down through the territory and getting closer to Canaan, he, he, he receives word that Esau is coming with 400 men. Jacob can only think of one thing destruction is going to happen. And so he, he splits his family in two. He thinks if the one group is destroyed, captured, the other can escape. And so he puts his favorites with part of his herd, and he puts Leah and her sons and another. And he knows the next morning is going to be a day of decision. What is going to happen? He moves him across a small river that they've come to where they've been watering. And now he's alone at night. He crosses over the, the river by himself, and he's on the other side. And I'm, I think he's thinking about him back across his life and all the things that have happened to him, many of them of his own making. And now there are consequences for it. Tomorrow he's meeting Esau, 
and he has no idea what's going to happen. Has his brother been simmering here for these 20 years and just waiting to put a dagger in him? What, what is going to happen? And as he's out there pondering these things, a man shows up and starts wrestling with him. And he's, he's strong, but he's not as strong as Jacob, and they wrestle all night long. And finally, as daybreak is, is coming, the man says, you have to let me go. And Jacob says, you have to bless me first, and he won't let loose. And the man reaches over and touches his thigh and puts it on a joint. And Jacob cannot fight anymore. And so the angel blesses him. We're not sure if it's the angel of the Lord or perhaps a Christophersy, something that happens before Christ comes. He, has, he seems to have appeared at different times in the Old Testament. But Jacob is left with a blessing and with a limp. He's going to limp the rest of his life. And every time he takes a step, he's going to be reminded of the fact that he has struggled with the Lord, struggled with his life. And the angel says to him, you're not any longer going to be Jacob. You are going to be called Israel. Going to become the one who has struggled with the Lord. The prince of the Lord. And so Jacob now becomes the patriarch Israel. Another son will be born. These 12 sons of his will become the 12 sons of Israel, the tribes. God's plan for the future. And so Jacob, the next day, goes out to meet his, his brother. He's fearful. He sends present after present. Esau has no use for him. He's, he is, is richer, richer than Jacob by now. That past is all gone. All he wants to do is see his brother. And so they fall on each other's neck, and, and there is resolution. There is a future for him. All of that past at this point is washed away. And Jacob can continue on now to the land of Canaan and begin his new life there as Israel and its future as well. Now as you uh, look at this picture of these saints of the Old Testament, first you wonder if they're saints. Henry Ironside, an old preacher of the past, uh, some lady came up to him and he'd been preaching about out of Romans there that uh, God hated Esau, but he loves Jacob. And she said, how could God hate Esau? That's not the problem, said Harry. The problem is how could God love Jacob? And uh, there's some truth to that. But as we look at this picture, we can ask some questions of ourselves. Have you met, ever met someone like Laban? And I suspect a number of us could shake our head and say, yes, I've worked for a Laban. I know exactly what they're like. They misuse you. They cheat you. These things happen. Perhaps it's a parent has mistreated us. Perhaps a boss, even maybe a spouse. We've run into Laban's. And only God can deliver us from this kind of a situation. Then there's Esau. The book of Hebrews says in chapter 12 that he despised his, his spiritual heritage. He had no, no place for it. And I, I think he was in, always in pursuit of, of the material. And that's why when Jacob cheated him, in a sense, out of his 
his birthright. He didn't care. That was the least of his worries. But when Jacob took his inheritance and was going to walk away with his flocks and his herds, that was a different story. In the New Testament, Jesus tells the parable of the four types of soil. And he talks about how the, the sower goes out and sows and the, the grain begins to come up. But then the weeds come up alongside of it and choke them out. And I think this is almost the picture of, of Esau and the danger there is in, in life. That we can get so busy, so taken up with things that the weeds choke out the important things. For Esau, all he could see in the future was, was the flocks and his, his dad's property. No place for spiritual leadership, no place for God. We never read about him building an altar or, or worshiping at any place. Too easy at that point. And then Jacob, who's running away from everything. I think even from God at the beginning. And God has to get a hold of him. First there at Bethel, and then on the way back in a wrestling match. And maybe God has had to deal with you in a wrestling match to bring you to, to him. He fought with his father. He fought with Esau, with Laban, and even his wives. He had trouble at every juncture. And I don't think that changed until he came to terms with God. And his life was changed. We talk about that as, as salvation in Christian terms. Coming to know and to walk with God. To let him be our guide. And I think in Jacob's life this was true. And it was reflected in his new name, Israel. I like to think that he was a new and changed man at this point, And God could use him. There's a wonderful verse in Romans. But God commended this love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's, that's a part of the message here of the, the story of the chronicles of Jacob, story of, of his life, and how it took so much for him to come to understand God's meaning and purpose with him. God has that for each of us. And today I trust that the chronicles of Jacob become the chronicles of our life as well. How God has taken us step by step from where we are, from where we were, what we were, to what we could become in his light and purposes. Lord, thank you again for the story of the Old Testament. Reminded that you have purposes and plans for each of us. And Lord, even though we might stumble as Jacob did it from time to time, you're not done with us. You're just beginning. And so I pray this morning that as we come again to a, a point of decision, that our hearts will be turned to you, that we will recognize what you are about with us and that we will walk with you. Thank you, Lord, for your continuing love in our lives, that you do not give up on us, that you do care for us. Bless us and we pray, not for who we are, for you and what we will be, but because of your great plan and purposes for us in Jesus Christ. Amen.